Welcome to Unlocked, a podcast from the National Library of Scotland and the Scotland Science Network. I'm Lindsay Moyes. Throughout the series, we've been showcasing a selection of archive audio which has been rescued and restored from all over Scotland by the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage team. The theme for this episode is Voices. Probably about 80-85% of the material that we digitised would fit into the rough category we would refer to as oral history. That's Alistair Bell, Sounds Collections Curator at the National Library of Scotland. What's really interesting, I think, about oral history and with a lot of oral history interviews is you're quite often asking people that might not have been asked before to articulate their lives in such a way that it's being recorded. It's allowing people to kind of express themselves in their own words, preserving some of that knowledge that comes from their community. What it also does, and certainly from a preservation point of view, is beyond what they're saying, is how they're saying it. And the ability to capture that intangible culture of language and spoken word through these recordings, different accents and dialects and languages of Scotland that have been preserved through these collections that we've digitised. Cool. Keyed, calm, cune, a stone, cloth. Here's a great example of this diversity in language to kick off our audio journey. To explain the background, here's Jenny Park, project manager for Unlocking Our Sound Heritage. It's an interview by Roy Wentworth, who was the curator at the local Gearloch Museum. And he interviewed various people, but this particular recording is Roddy McKenzie. And he asks him to repeat certain phrases and words in Gaelic. And the Gaelic dialect from Gearloch is quite distinct and quite different to say, for example, Lewisian Gaelic or um, the Gaelic of the Highlands. So it's a wonderful verbal Dictionary. It's a fabulous resource. Of of the stone, um, the can the colour of the stone. Da na clohi. Shore. Clatoch. Clatoch. The burial ground na cemetery. Clog. Digging. Clog. A sword. Clay. Clay. Mm-hmm. A buzzard. Clava. Children. Cloying. I guess Chef Echola has shot exhaust. It, it exhausted me and tired me. Chef Echola could have cloy. Cloy yummy. Now I'm in my cloy. Chef cloy. Cloy yummy. Now I'm in my cloy. Agus na hami cluich she the to shinaklak kujok agus exhausting weather tiete cluichok the care and precision they're taking to reveal the subtleties of meaning in every word and phrase as the clock ticks away in the background is very special in order for valuable recordings such as this to be discovered and enjoyed by a wider audience, thorough cataloguing is needed. And this is the man who's taken on the job. My name is Robert Smith, or Rob Smith. I'm the cataloguing coordinator on the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project based at the National Library of Scotland. 
this project's been incredibly rewarding for me. The depth and breadth of material that we've been preserving is substantial. My role's primarily focused on managing a lot of the data that's produced by the project, dealing with the descriptive catalogue data that's produced to document the items and recordings that we are preserving. I've also been heavily involved in the volunteer program and provided training and support to around 100 volunteers who've worked with us over the course of the project. We've had volunteers from all walks of life. The volunteers help to listen through the vast quantity of audio that's being received. As time is of the essence, one of Rob's top training tips is to skip through identifying the key information rather than listening in depth. Though he admits it's not always a rule he sticks to himself. Sometimes it can be just a voice that draws you in. This recording is of Ian Sutherland of Caithness Local History Group. It was the first northern voice that I remember encountering on the project. Again, he had one of those voices and an accent, which I, I tuned into quite quickly. Can you understand about Holligo? You have to ken, first of all, fit the lay of the land looks like. And there's no all that many folk who have been doing in it. And for very good reason, because it's an awful struggle to get back up. Here is Ian Sutherland talking about the Hualago Steps in Caithness. A somewhat daunting flight of steps set into the cliff face leading down to the harbour. Let me describe a place it sail first to leave. It's a, and they went to town particularly, a bit very dark, foreboding and menacing place. A would sail is about 250 yards, 300 yards deep in the coast. At the moon, it's about maybe 80 to 100 years wide, and it's shaped just like a triangle, if you can imagine that, on that size. And the beauty of Wallago is, it's deep water, right up until you come to the beach itself. There's never any danger to boats, and because it had deep water, there was never broken water to run in through these small boats, which is why Wallago was designed. With the dialect, the most wonderful Caithnessian accent, not only do you feel like you're actually there when you're listening to the description, but it's much more emotive. The words are much more descriptive of what you're actually seeing or hearing in this case. And I think they can paint a much bolder picture. Now, on the north side of the bay, as far has been built, one of the greatest pieces of construction that there exists any place in Europe if no further afield than that, that men have made to get down the harbour to get the sea. Because on the north side of the Gyo, you have a flight of steps with 242 steps in it, by the head of the Gyo, right down the feet, and there are dry stain. There are cut out the rock and stained in. That was quarried to make the foundations. It was then used to make the steps. The <clears throat> steps are in six traverses. In other words, it changes direction six times. And the longest flight in a single run, a foot, a change of direction, is for the top. But you come for the hoose, for the cry, the square, right down till about a hundred feet down a blowy cliff, face top itself, and then it changes direction, and after that it zigzags five times till you come to the bottom. Ian Sutherland on the Hualago Steps, definitely not for the faint-hearted. 
The next step on our audio journey takes us north and east to Shetland and also transports us back in time. I think my most favourite recording from the project is an interview with Minnie Lamont from Nesting in Shetland. And it's just wonderful. Her accent is wonderful. Her description of life in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and the sound of her carding wool and spinning wool in the background as the oral history recording goes ahead. It's a clip that just makes me feel really kind of warm and fuzzy. It's not, it's not a lifestyle or a time period that I'm familiar with, but she just draws you in with her storytelling and makes you feel like you're part of the family. And even though some of the things that she's describing are huge challenges, it feels warm and welcoming and that you're visiting nesting and you're hearing about how life was there kind of encapsulates everything that the project's trying to do, bringing to light the stories of people who otherwise wouldn't be heard. Mrs Lamont, I would like to know a wee bit about what it was like in the old days in Shetland when you were a girl. Can you tell me something about that? Well, you see, we were a very poor family. And my father was dead before I was born. He died at sea, so mother was left with 12, and I was unborn. She was just five months with me after just about the time that he died. So you can know what it was to have 12. I was the youngest one at 12. You can know what a life she had to bring up all that family without a father. Yes, it must have been a struggle. How, uh, where did you actually live in those days? We lived in Nesting. That's on the Shetland mainland, isn't yes, it? Yes, about 15 miles north from here. And what kind of house did you live in? Oh, we just had a country house, you know, with a button bin. And we had to spin and, and carve and just do everything because there was, there was no money. What's the sort of earliest thing you can remember? Well, I just can remember me trying to nip when I was very young, about five. You know, my older sisters would put up a statue too and I would nip. And do you know what I nipped? Gardens for old ladies. You see, there were no suspenders then. And I used to make the gardens to tie up the socks with. Aye. And I was that proud that I could make the strips of gardens for the old lady's socks, you see. It was fine. And then I made the ribbons. Uh, I, I could uh, make uh, what they wore off of the wrists, you see, when they were working and keep it their hands warm. What kind of wristbands? Wristbands. And I was that proud that I could make that for the old ladies that was working outside. And, and you just progressed from the easy I things to the... And I progressed from that, and then I got a turn of the wheel. You see, it was mother's wheel, and we could hardly touch it because it was the livelihood. But I would try and get a turn of the wheel when nobody was looking, and <laughs> I could spin when I was very young. So this was recorded in 1969, and she's remembering her time when she was a child, and this is the kind of thing that we find a lot with our oral histories. You're recording at a time, but you're actually picking up a long period of history. It's somebody's life story. And so as an elderly lady in 1969, she's actually talking about her life in the 1890s. So we're going back over a century with her reminiscences about a specific period of time, spoken as oral testimony 
And I think that is is the joy of some of these archive recordings, is that we're able to transport ourselves in audio back that far. When it comes to, to dealing with the subjects that I covered, as a cataloger, you know, that I have a number of tools at my disposal which can help me identify broad subjects that might be contained within a recording that leads to a user, hopefully, being able to, to find a number of recordings from various collections which are focused on that particular subject that they're interested in. So one of the main subjects that comes up again and again across a number of different oral history collections is about employment, different forms of employment. One collection which has greatly boosted Rob's employment section is the Salt of the Earth project from the National Museum Scotland. The Workers' Educational Association headed up the project it consists of oral history interviews, which were produced over a period between 1998 and 2001. And each of these sessions were led by a tutor who would look to carry interviews that would construct a picture of life in 20th century Scotland. These sessions were held throughout Scotland, so there were even sort of specific groups for like different parts of Glasgow. So I know that like there, there was a, a Mary Hill group and there was a Govan group. There was a group from Stricken, Aberdeenshire. They were quite localised, and in that way, they were able to get quite localised information and local stories captured to show that kind of breadth of experience of life in Scotland in the 20th century. Here's an example from the Salt of the Earth collection now. This is John Noble with Isabel Buchan, recalling his coopering days in the fishing community of Fraserburgh. So who did the Marcus bottles? Can you mind? Oh, I mind I made them. <laughs> well, who did you mark them? Well, with? you had your staves to joint and ends to sort. Mm-hmm. Hoops, with wooden hoops first. Wooden Yes, but then they could do it and the iron hooks come in. Mm-hmm. Well, you couldn't tell you unless you saw if it went up the bottle like. <laughs> yeah. That was it, aye. And you have to bend the wood up. Ah, that's right, aye. Right. Built them up, raised the bottle, speak of it. Stayed was all jointed. But the hand jointed them, a great big long thing like a plane. And you hand jointed them for a start. But then later on he years, the saw them mm-hmm. and I saw them three at a time and they said what work. Coopering, to a certain extent, it is a lost art. I mean, obviously it still happens, especially in the whisky industry and things like that, but it's not as widespread. And the coopering that he did was obviously for preserving fish. It was for salted fish rather than any kind of drink. And he talks about his family's life in fishing and all the generations that at the time of the recording were still involved in fishing. And he does all of this in the wonderful accent from Fraserburgh. And I I have to confess to say that I didn't know before listening to this what the Brock was. I hadn't heard of that before and had to go away and look it up. And it's the, the local name given by people who live in Fraserburgh to their town. And again, wonderful dialect and use and some very specific words to the Fraserburgh area. It gives a great insight into his life in the, the fishing community. So did your father travel away fishing or not? Pardon? Did your father travel with the fishing? Yes, we get to Yarmouth and Baltasun. But Baltasun stopped at the year I started. 
That's true, but then he didn't go back after that. So, fifty years was that? <laughs> about. How would it have been about? Thirteen. Nineteen twenty, I would say. Mm-hmm. Nineteen twenty. You, you used to because go? I, because I mean, I would have messed with him. He had a yule up in Bucky. And his lad was daft for a yule, you know. Uh-huh. He still wanted to take her home. And, and time after that, a man wrote for Bucky soon, a letter, and asked to buy the yule. And my father said, on how much? One pound. Mm-hmm. We sort of, he said, if I took out you all here, you'll only be going drunk in the British show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, One pound for a boat. Sounds like a bargain even back then. Compelling as they are, these reminiscences are very much snapshots and, as with much oral history, provide a personal rather than a national perspective. Jenny Park. I think you always have to be careful because your recordings in a collection will always reflect a very small microcosm and they can't necessarily speak to the whole country but they're really really good at throwing light and knowledge on a particular area whether it's geographic or economic or a particular demographic so for example in the next clip which is from the Tullis Russell paper mill they interviewed everybody from the managing director all the way down to the shop floor. So you have a really, really good idea of how everything worked around that company. And in particular, in this recording, they're talking about the social life and the clubs that were associated with Tullis Russell. So they had you know, film clubs and gardening clubs and things like that. A lot of things that you don't find now with an employer don't necessarily have all those associated clubs. It was an interview with a community, although it wasn't a geographical community in this sense. It was a business community, an economic community. There was lots of things that happened in the mill that... At that time too, I could recall is the the film society. The I I the, used to go. Yeah, it was held in the canteen. Mm-hmm. Aye, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, there was the music societies, and oh, there's a lot of things happening. And there, of course, there was a, an off again gardening club. Aye, it was it was held there. in the, the wee hall. The first the first show. Yeah was held in Rothes Hall, Rothes Bond oh, Hall. Oh, yeah. Oh, is that mm. the one I'm thinking about? Rothes Junior Saint? Near your house. Near your house. Mm-hmm. So you come out the right. back door of the pub. That was along the big house. That's right. Aye. Aye, hello. Poor the man that used to be in the canteen and his daughter... Aye. Low. 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 And his daughter was in the big office, wasn't she? Aye. Where there were three houses there, and it was just down the side of that yeah. house that they had the, the Aye, hall. That's right, Aye. yeah. And then there was another wee woman, she kind of went wrong <laughs> in the head, and we used to get a laugh with her because she used to say, about, if you were speaking about a television show at night, you can and telling her in the morning, she used to say, There's no television coming in my house. They'll see, yeah? <laughs> yeah she thought that when your television, the people... Uh, that would be when the television just started. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And you couldn't speak about television there because she used to go right... Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Former workers at the Tullis-Russell Mill in Fife. 
That collection comes from St Andrews University. And we're staying with the theme of recreation now, albeit in a very different workplace. This clip is from Edinburgh Museums and Galleries' Remember When collection, an oral history project which recorded the experiences of the LGBTQ community. It's an interview with Caroline Meeker and she describes living in Edinburgh Castle while she's in the army and the complexities of maintaining a lesbian relationship while she was living there. And just that description of how things worked when Edinburgh Castle was an actual garrison rather than the tourist attraction that we, we all see it as today. Can you tell me about living in the castle? That's quite interesting. Where, where, where's the accommodation in the, the castle? Is, is, do you have to be back by a certain time? No, no there's, <laughs> there's no, there's no curfew um, because the, the castle's guarded 24-7 by soldiers from a Scottish regiment. Um, so yeah, they might get a little bit pissed off if it's three o'clock in the morning and they've got to drag themselves out, but, but that's their job, they're there on sentry duty. Um, we used to park our cars mostly at the top when it's not, the castle's not being used for public duties, we, can, we could drive our cars up to the top and park them up by, the, by where the, the soldiers are, are working there. Um, so no, no, no curfew. Being a lesbian in the, in the, the castle presented its, its own challenges, I should say, because it was still illegal uh-huh. at that, that period for, for gay activity in the army. So I needed to be quite um, uh, creative <laughs> in-house. So, and the handy thing was being able to drive your car up so you could have your passenger kind of lying on the back <laughs> on the back floor <laughs> as you drove up. And, and, then, and then living and working in the castle as I did, I knew all of the, the, the secret passages and whatever, so I could so I could walk in past the juice room and nod at people. Meanwhile, my partner would be coming up the back stairs. Wow. <laughs> up to, up to my room. The enterprising Caroline Meeker making full use of those secret passages. There's an army connection in our next archive selection too. This comes from the National Library of Scotland's own Scotland's Record Collection. We have three recordings by Bert Souter and they are all about his experiences in the army. He joined the Colours in 1934. He served in the northwest frontier of India from 35 to 39. And then he talks about his war years in the Second World War from 39 to 45 and beyond. We don't really know much about him. And all of this is just little tidbits that have been picked up from him telling his story. But he was blind and he would use the Newspeak talking newspaper service. And that led to him developing some audio correspondences. So he would trade tapes with other people to tell stories and just catch up with folk. And as part of the Scotland Record project, he decided to record his experiences of serving in the army during the Second World War. And he just had a voice which you could listen to. And I just felt very drawn to the stories he would tell. He would talk about what he received as a fresh army recruit, his run-ins with uh, various officers, just someone who you could sit down and listen to for a long time. I had to take Major Firth up to headquarters to get the instructions for the convoy to go on to Cairo. So we set off. I was just started off on the quayside, and I got driving along on the left-hand side. I wasn't on the road, just on the quayside. And uh, a big three-ton lorry come towards me on the same side of the road. I held my ground, kept 
going. And then I stopped it before we met, and uh, the driver off the three-ton lorry, he drove alongside me and stopped. He was a guardsman, and with his English drawl, he said, which infuriated me more than actually what he said, you are not in England now, old chappy. You drive on the right-hand side of the road here. You are in foreign service now. So I retorted that I was under the impression that you were not in foreign service until you were east of Suez. And anyway, you drive on the left-hand side of the road in India. And then bloody Sachenach, forgetting that Major Firth sitting beside me was a Sachenach. However, I glanced at him at the corner of, out of the corner of my eye, and a broad smile was on his face, so I seen that was, everything was all right. Bert Souter recording his army adventures, and just as well his major had a sense of humour. As Rob mentioned earlier, being blind, Bert would often use the Talking Newspapers service. Within Scotland's record, there are several editions of talking newspapers for the Edinburgh area. They contain lots of different things from recipes to news items, how to keep fit at home, along with a price check where they would go to different supermarkets and tell you what the prices were in different supermarkets of various items, you know, a tin of beans, a pint of milk, a loaf of bread, so that people who were visually impaired could make the best choice about which supermarket to go to. It opened up my eyes to how audio could be utilised to help individuals. It's very much of its time. They're quite amusing to listen to and to look back on as to this is how people used to live and this is the advice you would get. Yes, this clip in particular is all about how to choose the best pair of shoes for your feet. Um, gives lots of advice for the visually impaired and how to, to choose a good pair of shoes. And bear in mind, you know, that uh, you need to be walking securely. So they should be practical shoes and, and not peery heels. Shoes are meant to be worn as a protection for the foot as well as for decoration. The right shoe for the occasion is what one must keep in mind. Not just football boots for soccer and steel toe caps for use in industry, but sensible shoes for everyday wear. Avoid tin soles. They give little protection insulation, and if you have already lost some of the fatty padding on your own feet, you need protection. Ensure that the shoe is attached to the foot by laces or a strap. The foot and shoe should bend as one. Have your feet measured professionally. Sizes vary from one manufacturer to another, Always try on both shoes, as most people have one foot a little longer than the other. Problems which sometimes occur are that if you have hammer toes or a bunion, you can't get shoes to fit. There are, however, ways of... All sorts of advice follows, from the usefulness of elastic laces to the importance of shoe repair and getting your feet measured professionally. suitable for you. I do hope that you're finding these suggestions on foot care helpful. There should be no excuse now for you not taking the dog for a little longer walk because your feet hurt. 
Remember, there are nearly 6,000 state-registered chiropodists in the country, so give one of them a call if you have any foot problem which is persistent. While few might dispute the benefits of a comfy shoe, here's another recording from the Salt of the Earth programme, featuring some rather more outlandish inventions. It's interviews with a group of partially sighted ladies, and they're talking about some of the things which are gadgets invented to help them. So they have all sorts of things which which beep. It's very much the overuse of technology to help support people in areas where they maybe don't need support. And obviously, as they've, they've said in the recording as well, they had to pay to buy these things. So why would you pay money for something that bleeps when it rains when you could just listen and see if the rain has come on? <laughs> Other things which I found hilarious were a set of scales that actually speak to you and the horror of somebody actually saying your weight out loud. That might well depend on what the scales have said. Much hilarity in that recording from the Salt of the Earth project. And our final clip is from the same collection. This is the very charming Jessie Patience, recorded in Och on the Black Isle, reminding us again of the importance of preserving these audio memories. Alistair Bell. The recording from Och, Jessie Patience, is a good example again it's really nice because there's a, an openness and a friendliness about it, but it's also recording an accent from a specific part of the country. That's really important for me. I've always loved the different types of dialects and, and accents and the different languages that we have in Scotland. And so to be able to have these recorded and be able to share them, is, uh, I think is really special. Jessie Patience. 
gently wrapping things up with her recollections of a different time and pace of life. I hope you've enjoyed these archive snapshots of everyday lives and hearing some of Scotland's many accents and dialects. Thanks to Alistair Bell and the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage team, Jenny Park, Rob Smith, Connor Walker and Mel Reeve-Rawlings for guiding us through this audio treasure hunt. I'm Lindsay Moyes and this has been Unlocked, a podcast from National Library of Scotland and the Scotland Sounds Network. Thank you for listening. Thank you.